My name is Brian. If we've never met, uh, we want to welcome those of you who are brand new. We want to welcome those of you who are watching online. And of course, it's always great to gather with our church family. Um, when was the last time you were woken up in the middle of the night? Not you couldn't sleep, but like, oh, something is out there. On October 2nd, 2014, 63-year-old Jay Priest and his wife Karen heard barking dogs outside. Now, this wasn't unusual for the sleepy town of Parker or Palmer, Alaska, but they knew if there were dogs barking that early, something was going on. Maybe there was a bear rummaging around in the trash, someone coming home late from work, who knows. All they know is that they heard dogs barking, but then they heard knocking at the door. Jay looked through the window and saw the broad-rimmed hat of an Alaska state trooper, and Karen said, we knew right away the dread. It's not good when a trooper knocks on your door at 3 o'clock in the morning. Unfortunately, their suspicions were confirmed as the trooper told them that their 29-year-old son, Jason, regrettably had lost his life in an automobile accident. The officer said his car crashed into a tree at a very high speed. Karen said that her husband instantly started sobbing, but she just stood there in shock. There are no words, she said. We just kept staring at him. Now, as they gathered themselves, the couple decided that they should drive over to their other son's house so they could tell him so he wouldn't have to hear on the news in the morning. In a mental fog, born of grief and shock, the priests put their clothes on and drove 45 miles to Anchorage to break the news to their other son, Cody. Awakened at 4.30 in the morning, Cody collapsed when they told him what happened. After a long embrace and countless tears, Cody said that they ought to go over to Justin's girlfriend's house and tell her the news because they don't want her to hear about, it or hear about it on the news either. So after a long embrace, Cody, his mom and dad, drove over to Justin's girlfriend's house. Jay paused, took a deep breath, opened the car door, walked up to the house and knocked. 30 seconds later, the door opened, and standing before him was his son, Justin. The son that they were told had just been killed. I didn't know why they were yelling and screaming, Justin said. I was mostly asleep. They were yelling, praise Jesus, it's a miracle, praise Jesus, (laughs) hugging and screaming and crying and holding on to me. And this went on for about a half an hour, Justin said. What actually had happened is that there were two Justin Priest, living in Palmer, Alaska, and the police told the wrong family. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being told that your child is gone, and then an hour later you find out they're actually alive? The only thing that would temper your celebration, especially for the the priests at this time, was they knew that another couple was about to go through what they just went through. Justin's father said, I never cried so much in my life. Tears of grief and then tears of joy. People who go through tragic events will often tell you, they'll report afterwards, that their perspective on life often changes. And how would it not? You thought you lost your whole world and then you get it back again? How would that not cause someone to walk more slowly with loved ones, to linger a little bit longer in conversations, to make sure as they're going out the door that you always say, I love you. 
Now, not coincidentally, productivity experts in the United States have picked up on this. In fact, in his landmark book, many of you might have read it, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey asked people at the beginning of the book to visualize being at a funeral. This funeral is just like every other funeral you've ever been at, but at this particular funeral, he says, I want you to visualize when you walk up to the casket and look, you are in the casket. And he says, that picture ought to force you mentally to focus on what's important in life. Steve Jobs, in a commencement address at Stanford in 2005, said, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. We're told that something magical happens. If we could just put ourselves in the mindset of facing our own mortality, our soon death, the temporary nature of our relationships, and how it can be gone at any time, something magical happens when we do that. Priorities get realigned. Relationships are prioritized. Listen, that advice is the best advice our culture has to help people who are exhausted. That's the best you're going to get. Think about your death, how much time you have left, and that will cause you to put what is most important before you at all times. This is going to surprise you, but there aren't a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about thinking about death all the time. There aren't a lot of verses, not many at all, I can't think of any, that say, you need to keep your death before you at all times, constantly. Constantly thinking about you being in a casket. Because if you do, it's going to cause you to focus on the most important things. And there are a couple reasons for that. One is, thinking about death all the time is a terrible way to live your life. Those of you who have tragically lost loved ones, of course there's a season of grief that you go through. Your whole world was upended. But if your loved one could talk to you right now, they would look at you and say, get on with it. Move on. The best way you can honor me is living your life, not leaving my room untouched like it was in 2011. Peter Drucker used to ask people that he consulted with all the time, two questions. What business are you in and how's business? One of my great professors at Princeton Seminary used to say, God is in the life business. From birth to the grave, God is in the life business. Besides, do you really want to be thinking about death all the time? Do you really want to be doing that? Here's the other reason you don't see a bunch of scriptures telling us, think about death all the time, because that's going to keep you doing what's most important in life. It's the other, the other reason, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. All of us have, maybe not extreme situations of extreme loss, but all of us have gone through periods of poignant moments in our lives where something important happens that realigns our priorities, and we say, that's it, from now on, we are going to do this and this and this and this. And what happens three weeks later? You go right back to living normally. It's because it doesn't work. See, listen, our problem 
with never-ending exhaustion is the never-ending exhaustion, the daily grind, meal planning and commuting and email and paying the bills and laundry. If we weren't so tired all the time, we'd have no problem doing what is important. If there were nine different versions of ourselves, we could do it all. The problem is the exhaustion that we're dealing with. And the culture's solution is better time management. And what the Bible says is that our problem is not time management. Our problem is lordship. And it's a very different approach. We're continuing our series today called Jailbreak. And what we're doing is we're talking about how sin has, has been broken. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. And there are these prisons that we keep going back into that we've already been busted out of. Reminds me of that, long, that, that, that line from Hotel California. We're just prisoners here of our own device. So the first week, what we did is we talked about jailbreaking ourselves out of negative self-talk. Last week, we talked about how we can jailbreak ourselves from the opinion of others. Today, what we want to talk about is jailbreaking ourselves from never-ending exhaustion. So turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 16. Now, for those of you who are new, you'll know, hopefully you saw carts that were there. You can grab Bibles on the way in. For those of you who are not hard copy Bible kind of people, you can download our church app. You can go to Google Play or the app store, type in CCV Mobile. It will come up. On the right-hand side is the Bible tab. You can follow along the passage we're looking at today. But I have an assignment before we read, okay? Here's the assignment. In the Proverbs, the nine Proverbs that we're going to read, two themes run through these Proverbs. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the Proverbs, and I want you to see if you can pick out the two themes. Are we good? Here we go. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1 says this, to humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. When the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's way, he causes their enemies to make peace with them. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. So do you see the themes? This first one is clear. It's this. The first thing that runs through these Proverbs is is the constant need for humans to make decisions. We get up in the morning, we make decisions. We have to make a decision about what we're going to do today. We aren't robots. We have got the ability and the free will to make decisions about what our life is going to be like. Look at these verses. The plans of the heart, all a person's ways. Establish your plans, anyone's way plan their course. How many of you have been uh, in Wawa lately right around rush hour? All right. Uh, Do you like the new uh, sandwich screens? Probably a couple years, the sandwich screens. The worst experience in the world is being at Wawa at 1215. And right before you get up to the screen, you have friends text you, hey, can you pick me up something? Right? Because your friend never tells you, I just want a simple turkey and cheese sandwich. 
They don't do that, do they? No. They're like, I want, a, I want a thing of oregano on it. I want a side of this, a little bit of onions. I want the chipotle sauce. I want this. And after about entering some of these, you're like, oh my gosh, toast the sandwich or not toast the sandwich. You have a whole army of people screaming behind you, hurry up, what's going on? And that's what our day is like. We wake up in the morning. We have this whole assortment of things we could possibly be doing. Virtually none of which we know we're ever going to get done. But the pressure that is put upon us to get that stuff done, that's what causes the exhaustion. That's ground zero of never-ending exhaustion. Della Efron said, if you followed a mother around all day, mother of small kids, middle school kids, high school kids, college kids, you just followed that mom around all day, and you hit uh, start at the beginning of the day and stop when the day was over and then you edited out all of the responses of the children around that mother, it would sound like this. Don't leave it there. Take it upstairs. Is that yours? Don't hit your brother. I'm talking to you. Just a minute, please. Can you see I'm talking? Don't interrupt. Did you brush your teeth? What are you doing out of bed? Go back to bed. You can't watch it in the afternoon. What do you mean there's nothing to do? Go outside. Read a book. Turn it down. Get off the phone. Tell your friend you'll call her back right now. Hello? No, she's not going to call you. She'll call you when she gets home. Take a jacket. We'll take a sweater. We'll take one anyway. Get the toys out of the hallway. Get the toys off the stairs. Don't you realize that could kill someone? Make your bed. Clean your room. Set the table. I need you to set the table. Don't tell me it's not your turn. Please move your chair up to the table and sit up. Just try a little. Just try a little. You don't have to eat the whole thing. Stop playing with it and eat it. Would you watch what you're doing? Move your glass. It's too close to the edge. Watch it. More of what? More, please. That's better. Just one bite of salad. You don't always get what you want in life, do you? Don't argue with me. I'm not discussing this anymore. Go to your room. No, 10 minutes are not up. How many times have I told you, don't do that? Is your homework done? Stop yelling. I said stop yelling. (laughs) The thing is, you may be retired. You may be the CFO of a company or a second-year student at Penn State. It doesn't matter. The circumstances may be different, but the feeling of never-ending exhaustion is exactly the same. And imagining ourselves laying in a casket Embracing our mortality is not going to help when we still have 23 important emails to return at 9.45 at night. Fortunately, there's a second theme that is woven through these scriptures that actually start in chapter 15 of the last verse. They form a unit. And the theme of this is God knows what we should focus on, and he will tell us if we just ask. Out of all the different things we could be doing tomorrow when we wake up, he'll let us know which he thinks is important if we would just ask. It's interesting. In this segment of scriptures, you want to know the one word that keeps coming up over and over again? It's not so much plans, decisions, and priorities. It's God's name. Yahweh, proper name of God, occurs ten times In these Proverbs, and verse 9 sums up all of them. It's this. In their their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. How many of you are sitting next to someone who, let's just say, they're a little challenged when it comes to directions? Can you do something kind of just, 
lean over and go, <clears throat> you do that, just like point at the person. All right. You know that a GPS is God's gift to some of you in the room. Go get one. We need you to obey the Lord and get a GPS. God is an awful lot like a GPS system, isn't he? He knows the final, de- the best final destination where we're going to go, right? And, and along the way, he'll show us the steps. Turn here, turn left, turn right. Inevitably, what do we do? We'll miss a turn, at least I do. We'll miss a turn, we'll go left when we should go right, and then your GPS will start yelling loud. What? Recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. Listen to this. What these verses are trying to tell us is that without God, we are incapable of telling the difference between good options and the best option. This is huge. If we, could, if we could get this, if everybody in the room gets this point, it will change never in exhaustion. It's this. Without God, we aren't just pretty good at it, but we are incapable of telling the difference between the good options and the best option. The reason we experience never-ending exhaustion is that there are too many things for us to focus on that are good that are worth doing, right? Yes, use all the time management tricks and the day planners and all the different things that you want, but at the end of the day, you're still staring at a whittled-down list of nine really important things that you need to be doing tomorrow morning. And the problem, as we know, is that there's only one of us, and there's our 168 hours coming up this week. Which do we focus on? What the scripture teaches is that as human beings, we are incapable of telling the difference of these nine, which one is the most important one. The great spiritual writer Oswald Chambers said, the great enemy of the life of faith in God is is the good, which is not good enough. The good is always the enemy of the best. So right um, right before Easter, uh, we had moved, and that was, that was uh, quite an undertaking for those of you who were here when I talked about that. Um, I had a, a book that was launching, and then we were doing Easter. It was the perfect storm of everything. And um, I got up um, on the Monday after Easter so exhausted, so the, the crippling exhaustion, as I just I opened up the Bible, and I started reading through Proverbs. And I often do that when my life gets unmanageable because Proverbs has 31 chapters and I'll just read one a day, every day. So I'm reading Proverbs and as I'm praying and as I'm listening, I get hit with this thought that was more than just a thought for me. I just really felt God was impressing on me. I want you to take two, vac- two, vac- two weeks of vacation right now and do nothing. And I'm like, you don't understand, like, this is a really bad time for that. Like, this is, this is go time for our church. We cannot do this. There are so many things that are going on. I have a book that's launched, and I just really felt that God was like, I don't care right now. So I pulled our team together, and I was like, guys, you're going to have to carry the ball for two weeks because I'm literally turning my phone off, and I'm not returning an email. And then I called on my publisher who reminded me, you do know you have a book launching. 
among all the different radio and TV interviews, all this kind of stuff you need to be doing to... No. Listen. Your circumstances may be different, and your circumstances may not necessitate, like from God, a mandatory two weeks. But my question is, do you even know what God wants you to do tomorrow? Do you even know? Do you even ask him? Our problem as Christians isn't discipline. Our problem is clarity. The reason we're so rushed and exhausted all the time is because we cannot discern the difference between what's important and what's most important. Only God can do that. When we can find out what he wants us to do, we can tell people a loving, guilt-free no with conviction. So we're going to do that right now. We're going to practice that. I'm going to go one, two, three, and you're going to say no. Okay? All right? Ready? One, two, three. No. Ah, that wasn't guttural enough. Let's dig deep. Right? Ready? One, two, three. No. All right. Let's yell it. Let's go. Let's give it out. You ready? This is, I want you to, I want you to, I want you to imagine my face as the face of your boss. It's the face of your husband. It's the face of your kids. I don't want you to throw anything at me right now, but I'm going to go one, two, three, and we're going to rally. Ready? One, two, three. No. There we go. All right. Will you please stop saying that? No. Okay. All right. Listen, I believe there's one thing that Jesus is always calling us to do. Slow down and listen. This is why you see throughout 2,000 years of church history, and you hear us say all the time, Right at the beginning of your day or right at the end of the day. Take a moment and read one chapter from the Bible, just a small section, and then simply ask the question, what would you have me do? I would do this at the beginning of the morning before you fill out your daytime or before you make your list, whether you're doing it on any tool or whatever it is. But you're simply going to say, God, here's everything that's going on in my life, all the things that I know I don't have time for. I'm going to read this passage of Scripture, but the most important thing you're going to do is listen. Please understand, when the Bible talks about prayer, it's talking about listening, not talking so much. People are like, we need to get together and pray, because if we can just utter the words together as a group, then God's going to do this. You need to understand, the Lord's prayer takes how long to pray? 30 seconds? And Jesus is like, that's how I want you to pray. Prayer is listening. Then you might throw in a few words. But we're not listening because we never slow down. Be intentional. Be present. You won't accomplish this week among the 168 hours that you have laying before you this next week. You won't accomplish 90% of what you think you need to do. And that's okay. Because if accomplishing 90% less is a huge win, it's a huge win if the 10% is what God wants you to do in the first place. Whatever problem you're facing, the path forward is almost always found by slowing down. And that's because as Christians, we are growing in discipleship. There's a reason you never see Jesus running in the Gospels. You only see God running one time in the New Testament, and that's in Luke chapter 15, where God is running towards the sinner. 
and grabbing him. The father is grabbing the wayward son. Jesus, and I don't think it was just historical in nature, I believe it was metaphorical. The gospel writers were saying, Jesus walked like this. And so if you're going to follow him, you're going to have to slow it down and back up and get behind him. Jesus is never rushed. He's never in a hurry. He never chases after you and says, oh, by the way, you know what? I was thinking that if we have the, okay, I'll just catch you after dinner. I'll just get you after dinner, right? We'll talk then. He never does that. Instead, what he does is he politely asks us to follow him. To follow him. Pay attention right now. Put your hand on your heart and feel your heart. Can you feel your heart beating? Do that for 20 minutes. How fast is your heart beating right now? How fast is your pace of life? When you think of everything that you have going and everything that you have to do, is it even remotely possible that maybe the reason that we're so exhausted is because Jesus is back here just slowly walking, asking us to follow him, and we're like seven football fields ahead of him. We've got stuff to do. The great spiritual writer Dallas Willard said, muddy water becomes clear if you only let it be still for a while. We slow down and we listen. As you came in this morning, you were given a link to a chain. Can everybody pull that, that chain link out? You're probably wondering, why do I have this in my hand? Before we become Christians, the metaphor the Bible uses is that we're like this. What Jesus does is he comes and he breaks these chains. Now, for those of you who aren't Christians, listen, I know you want to make the reason you you don't want to, uh, the reason you don't want to follow God is, I know there's not like enough intellectual proof or there's like the church isn't relevant in meeting my needs, blah, blah, blah. Come on, listen, this is going on in your life. This is what is happening. And the thing is, this happens to all of us. But the reason Jesus came and died on the cross 2,000 years ago is that his death breaks the chains, the power of sin, as it says in the book of Rome. My question is, why do you want to go through life like this? We have a baptism service today at 1215. And what we're going to do in just a moment is that we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to do a little differently. There are around the room tables. And what we want you to do is we want you to take your chain link, those of you who have not taken the step to make Jesus the leader and the forgiver of your life and get baptized, we want to take that chain link and we want you to go and we want you to drop it in the bucket as a way of saying, I'm going to be back here at 1215. I'm going to make Jesus the leader of my life. Now for Christians, we can talk about non-Christians all the time doing this. The reality is the chains are off and we're like, you know what? I prefer actually to live in chains. And what we're going to do is we're going to take our chain links and we're going to say, you know what? That never-ending negative self-talk we talked about the first week, I'm going to drop this in the bucket. Jesus, you've made me free of that. that is, I'm done with that. Constantly listening to other people and their opinions versus yours, I'm going to drop it in the bucket. I'm going to be done with that. This, this idea that I'm better with a lot of stress, it's my personality type. I get a lot of stuff done. 
You're going to say, you know what? I'm going to do life your way. I'm going to drop it in the bucket. Now, I just want to say this. The only thing worse than not becoming a Christian and, and, and going to church is, is going and not being changed. So if in a moment you like, you know what? I got to be honest. Tomorrow morning, I know I'm not going to get up open up a passage of scripture of all of the 24 straight hours that I have in that day. I can't take 10 minutes. Honestly, I'm not going to do it. Please do not take communion today. I want you to stay in your seat because that's an honorable thing to be honest. It's an honorable thing to be honest, but at least be honest. But for those of you who are like, you know what? I got to be honest that I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to, I just don't want to do this anymore. I want to do life your way. Just to get up, take your link, and I want you to throw it in the bucket. And I want you to take the bread and cup, and I want you to go back to your seat. And I want you to listen to the links as they hit the bucket, because those sounds are the sounds of freedom. Grab the bread, grab the cup, drop your chain link in the bucket. Come back and sit down, and after everyone has been served, we'll take together. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.